Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you have ever tried reasoning with a toddler? How'd that work out for you? (laughs) Depended on the toddler. It's not always great, right? Uh, I learned early on, uh, uh, Grace um, was not an, she was not a reasonable baby or toddler. Um, and I say that in, in, in spite of the fact that she was actually quite intelligent, I think that might have been part of the problem, but uh, we've, we've told her for years that she was by far our most difficult baby. Um, Georgia and I are still slightly traumatized by the time we took her to an outdoor festival when we were living in Belfont. And uh, we, meaning I, gave her 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 first taste of ice cream. And um, she would not stop screaming between bites because it was taking too long, as far as she was concerned. And she had no appetite control. She would eat and scream until she threw up. Um, She's gotten a little better now. (laughs) She hasn't thrown up in weeks. Um, No. Anyway, we learned early on, in other words, that you can't reason with a baby. Um, So we didn't even try with the others, and that made our lives easier for them and for us. Um, Now, maybe you've seen some parents who try to talk things out with, like, young toddlers. And uh, I always cringe a bit, like, oh, honey, let's be reasonable. Let's think about what we're, you know, and you have to understand. And, like, meanwhile, the kid's, like, screaming bloody murder and kicking his mother and all of a sudden throwing punches, you know. And I'm, like, I think to myself, like, there's only one language a child like this is going to understand when they're this out of control or if they're doing something dangerous, and that's a SWAT, corporal punishment, and then a nap, you know. I mean, the hardest I ever had to spank any of my kids was Jacob when he was young. He he ran out into the street, a a busy street. Why did I do that? Because I love him and I didn't want him to die, you know? Um, And I realize spankings become unpopular. I probably just lost a lot of viewers online. That's okay. Um, (laughs) But, of course, I'm not encouraging people to beat their kids. My only point is that irrational kids, irrational children, do not listen to reason. The same is true for dogs. Uh, unruly students in a classroom, Chris, probably, right, you know. Um, Rational discussion doesn't get you real far in these kinds of situations. And the reason it doesn't work is that reason is not the issue. 
Toddlers can barely speak the English language yet. They're not flipping out because no one adequately explained things to them, right? They're just feeling their feelings. They want what they want, and so they're acting out. Why? Because that's what toddlers do. And no reasoned argument's going to get through to them. And when this happens, you have two choices. You either spank them or you send them to bed, usually a combination of the two. Nothing else seems to work. And you do that because you love them. Now, why do I bring that all up? It's because last week we were introduced to the worst prophet of all time. Uh, He's not just a bad prophet, he's kind of just a bad Jew and really just a bad person all around. In reality, he is acting like an irrational toddler. It's like a dad telling his kid to do something and then just like running upstairs, you know, like God commanded Jonah to do something and he just got up and ran the opposite way. And he did this to get away, not from the job particularly, but from God himself. So within three verses, we already realized that Jonah is not the kind of hero we would typically write about or invent, right? Uh, We left off and he was boarding a ship in Joppa to go to basically the land of far, far away, right? Uh, Also known as Tarshish in Spain, a little bit past the Straits of Gibraltar. Now, that's already remarkable because little kids, when they run away, don't take a lot of time to think it out, right? Again, we're not rational. Uh, most temper tantrums are a gut reaction. It's a feeling, not a coherent decision. But Jonah's unique uh, because he's being very deliberate in his actions. Uh, if you'll remember, I said that he lived in Gath Hefer, which is Galilean wine country. He lives pretty far inland, in other words. Joppa, by contrast, is obviously a port city. Uh, today, it's actually part of Tel Aviv. Uh, You can still visit the ancient ruins and parts of the city, but it's not the nearest port city for Jonah. It's actually 75 miles south, uh, and there was no train in those days. So that means that Jonah had 75 miles of traveling by foot to Joppa before he could get on a boat. That's a lot of time to reconsider what you're doing, you know what I mean? And he does this because it's a bigger port and he's going to have more travel options. And Jonah's particularly interested in the international options, right? Uh, So he gets on a boat for Tarshish, which is like over 3,000 miles away by sea. Not the safest way to travel in the ancient world. And he does all this to avoid going to Nineveh, which is 750 miles away. Point being that by the time he were to arrive in Tarshish, Jonah could have been to Nineveh and back at least twice. Perhaps you've had the experience of telling your child to do something and then listen to them whine and try to get out of it and explain why they can't. And I don't know, in George's case, she always ends up telling them, you know, if you would have listened the first time and just go do it, you'd be done by now, right? So Jonah's being a very willful child, acting like a toddler throwing a tantrum, only a lot more deliberately and with a lot more uh, premeditation. But he's not the sort of person who's going to listen to reason. So God doesn't show up in a vision and plead with Jonah, does he? He doesn't argue with him. In fact, God shows incredible restraint here, and he lets Jonah walk those 75 miles and gives him plenty of time to think about what he's doing. And maybe he'll finally realize his folly and turn around, but then he gets there and he actually gets on the boat. As far as Jonah's concerned, that's the end of it. It's out of his hands. You see, I couldn't even turn the boat around if I tried. I, even if I repented now, I couldn't stop the process. I'm already on board, right? And Jonah doesn't need a patient explanation at this point. What he needs is two things, a spanking and a nap, in that order. 
Ironically, he seems to think he could skip the first step and go right to the nap, but we'll get to that in a minute. But again, God doesn't send Jonah another vision to explain things because the problem is not Jonah's understanding. The problem is his heart. He's in a reflexive rebellion against his Lord, and he needs a smack. So God sends him one. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. <laughs> but the Lord has different ideas. You know what? They say that you shouldn't discipline your kids in anger, and that's good counsel for sure, and God is very patient throughout this book. He's patient even in this passage, right? And I'm not suggesting that he lost his cool here or anything, but I love the verbiage because he doesn't send a storm. He hurls a storm. It's a violent act. It's the closest thing to a heavenly spanking that we're going to see. Jonah gets on this boat, and he thinks he's scot-free, and God's like, oh, no, he didn't. And I like the way the KJV puts it. Like It says that there was a mighty tempest of the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. That's where things are headed. That's not a subtle message that God is sending here. Uh, and look, this is an international cargo ship, probably as big a ship as they're going to have back in those days, but it feels like a toy in the sea right now. And these sailors who are experienced seamen are all convinced they're going to die, as is demonstrated in the next verse. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Should have stayed in Joppa. It's a funny thing. I mean, Joppa is only kind of mentioned briefly there in passing, but Joppa is sort of the hub of certain stories about God reaching out to Gentiles uh, God has a sense of humor about these things because that's actually where uh, Peter, the son of Jonah, was called to go baptize Cornelius while he was in Joppa. And uh, here we are hundreds of years earlier in, in the Joppa harbor uh, trying to avoid those dirty Gentiles in Nineveh is what Jonah's doing. And uh, he ends up on a boat full of pagan Gentiles anyway. And now they're facing imminent death. Again, this is not rational behavior. Now, it doesn't say here how long God waited to send this storm, but it was probably far enough away that, you know, land is no longer visible, right? You, you don't usually go to sea if there's an obvious storm on the horizon. And if you can see land when the storm comes, you would make for it quickly. But apparently they're in the middle of nowhere, right? And they've been at sea long enough that Jonah has had time to get comfy, right? He, he's gained his sea legs enough that he can sleep. I'm almost impressed because I can't even sleep in the car without getting queasy. But uh, God waits until Jonah gets real comfy before sending this storm. And one scary lesson you can take from that is that God is apparently okay with letting you get comfortable in your sin for a little while. He's very patient and sometimes he gives you lots of rope to hang yourself with. He could have stopped Jonah and Joppa if he wanted, but he prefers the drama of waiting until Jonah is sure that he's safe way out at sea. Just something to think about for those of you who may think that you're getting away with something. But another thing about this verse that strikes you is the contrast, because all of these very experienced mariners are convinced they're going to die. They're panicking, and Jonah is asleep. 
Now, these sailors are not fools. They know something about the sea. Uh, you don't get to be a mariner on an international cargo ship without seeing some stuff. Uh, and these are guys that would have been from every port throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, sailing's a very diverse business in that way. always has been. And they would have a world of experience between them, but they've never seen this kind of storm. And you have to know that because this is not a pleasure cruise. You don't throw all the cargo off of a cargo ship unless you're convinced you're going to die. You don't throw your livelihood overboard. And, I mean, maybe this is unfair, but another thing is that sailors are not reputed to be the most pious of men. Um, and I think that's because a lot of these guys went to sea because they couldn't go anywhere else. You would end up with criminals and runaways and uh, slaves and adventurers and cheating husbands and various things like this. Um, it, it's not a business that attracts the quiet, church-going family man who likes his routines. It's adventurers, right? And yet, here we find all of them earnestly praying to their gods. No atheists in foxholes. Gods from all over the world are being invoked. It's very ecumenical, this here prayer meeting, right? The only God not being invoked is the true God. Why? Because this clown Jonah, God's prophet, is downstairs sleeping. How can that possibly be? He says the boat feels like it's going to break in half and he's out like a light, fiddling while Rome is burning, right? He has no fear, no survival instinct, nothing. How can that be? All I can think is that Jonah fears the storm less than he fears God. The weather is not as scary as being in God's presence. And below deck, Jonah thinks he's found a pretty good hiding spot, so he's sleeping easy. Like when I was a kid, I, I used to sleep under the blankets even in summer, and I did that so that the monsters wouldn't get me. And... I still do that because, you know, that way the gremlins won't nibble my toes because everyone knows that monsters and gremlins are helpless against a few layers of flannel. <laughs> Completely impervious. I know that's ridiculous, but that's basically Jonah's logic here. Like, you think, oh, God won't see me. I'm going to go downstairs, you know. And, and here's the sick thing. That gives him peace of mind. So much peace that he can sleep through a hurricane. Why is Jonah so convinced that God can't see him? Again, it's lousy theology. It's pagan theology. He has a limited view of God. He, he thinks that he's outside of God's jurisdiction. Uh, it's the same reason that the mariners are afraid that their gods can't see them or hear them. Because see, in Jonah's time, every nation has its own gods, right? Uh, each country has its own long list of deities, usually representing things in nature. Uh, but they usually have a favorite who's kind of like the head god in that land, right? So Nineveh has Ishtar. The Egyptians have Ra. Uh, the Ammonites worship Molech. The Phoenicians worship Baal, etc., etc. But it was generally thought that your local god was kind of like the local sheriff. He's the one who's in charge in these parts. So Baal has no power in Rome, for instance. And Zeus has no power in Egypt. If you move somewhere, you likely adopt your new local god. And by extension, if your country defeats another in war, that becomes proof that your god is bigger than their god, and you would usually force the conquered people to worship your version of these pagan deities because every god is a national, regional god. Now in Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, was thought to dwell in the tabernacle, right? And later in the temple, somewhere above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat. But Jonah is thinking like a pagan that God kind of 
hangs out in Israel and Judah and limits himself there. But it's almost like Jonah forgot to read Genesis or something, because even though God symbolically, yes, dwells in the temple, he also made the entire world and everything in it, including the Temple Mount. So it's hard to confine him to one country, let alone a room. It's one of the things that makes the God of Israel, our God, so unique, even in the ancient world, is that he is not defined by national borders. He's the God of Israel, yes, but he goes well beyond that. He's the God of the U.S., he's the God of North Korea, Vietnam, China, Iraq, Uruguay, whatever, you name it. It's shockingly different from how most people thought in Jonah's time. Our our God is the God who went into Ur of the Chaldees and called Abram out of it. Our God is the one who speaks to Ezekiel while God's people are in exile in Babylon. Like wherever God's people are, you find him there. He gets around. And what this passage tells us is that our God does not respect national borders. He doesn't even respect the ocean. There's no such thing as an international waters line. Jonah's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He has no passport. He is under nobody's jurisdiction, not even the captain, really. I mean, Jonah already paid for his ticket. The captain technically owes him a safe trip. He's not coming back. He's a, he's a man without a country or a care in the world. He's not even on the deck where God might see him, just in case God is the sort of thing that floats in the sky like people often imagine. So Jonah says, I'm safely hidden out of sight. God might be mad at me, but he's never going to find me. I'll live life on the run And the jailer man and sailor Sam and the county judge who held a grudge will search forevermore for the man on the run. (laughs) It's arrogant, presumptuous, and profoundly stupid. So what does God do? Send a messenger pigeon? Or appear in a vision as Jonah sleeps? No. He, He hurls this mighty wind targeting this one particular ship and he manipulates the entire weather pattern just to get the attention of the people on board. He decides to get Jonah's attention in dramatic fashion, threatening him and everyone near him with anonymous death in the depths of the sea. There was not going to be any recovering the wreck, no proper funeral, no record of what happened. They would die far from land, far from their families, far from their gods. So they're terrified. But what does Jonah do? He sleeps. That is until the uh, captain comes to get him. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. It's funny how you can be completely unaware of just how much trouble you're in. It's like a husband forgetting his anniversary or something, like you don't even see your doom coming. Why does the captain want Jonah awake? It's not to help with the ship. No real sailor wants some landlubber touching anything if you can help it, right? You know, Jonah has no skills to offer in the situation. So why wake him up? It's because the captain, a very experienced man, can see that this is not a common storm, and he suspects that they're all destined to die this day. And as a man of his time, he's fully aware that they are not in anyone's country. They have no local god to appeal to. They're in godless territory out on the water. And his thought is... We can improve our odds of being heard if everyone starts calling out to their respective gods. One of them might hear and have mercy. But it's doubtful. To quote Gordon Lightfoot, Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the winds of November come early? Where can a pagan find the love 
of his gods when he's so far from all of them. But they're misinterpreting the storm a little bit. The captain seems to think that the storm is evidence that they've been forgotten. So he's worried that this little boat tossed in the waves is not going to be noticed by the gods. But this storm is not a sign of God's distance, is it? It's a sign of his very active presence. And God often uses storms to get our attention, doesn't he? Literal and figurative storms. Storms are not proof of God's indifference, but rather his intense involvement. He sends them when he thinks, well, when we think we're so well hidden. Storms are one of God's wake-up calls, a divine spanking to shake us out of slumber. And what he's telling Jonah is, you can't hide from me. The Bible has many stories of people who try to hide from God, Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes we talked about last week. Moses hid in Midian. David carefully hid his sin with Bathsheba. Peter and really all the disciples hid when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, right? The Bible is full of not only sinners but cowards. And maybe we can take some comfort in that because I suspect that the church today is full of the same sorts of people. And we all want to hide from God sometimes, but... Even the pagans know that hiding doesn't always make sense. Sometimes you come to an end of that. And one of the most convicting things about this passage is that the pagans seem to understand the danger better than Jonah does. Jonah, the servant of the living God, doesn't see it. The pagans are crying out to their gods, and God's prophet is sleeping. You know, when you're hiding from God, it's really hard to pray. And the fact is, is that, meanwhile, the world is perishing around you. Most of the time, they don't even realize it, but every now and again, God hurls a big enough storm, and then, suddenly, they start crying out to their gods. Some of you are old enough to remember 9-11. You can remember this phenomenon. Prayer became kind of fashionable for a little while, right? For a few weeks, the churches were full. But many, or probably most, of these people were crying out in ignorance. They're crying out to unknown gods, hoping that someone is listening. And it's not completely crazy. It's not irrational. It's a rational response to a rational fear of a very real danger. But Jonah is not being rational. Beloved, the first people in line to pray needs to be the church, not because prayer works in a sort of hallmark card kind of way, right? But because we're the only people in the world who have the Holy Spirit. You and I, we have direct access to the throne room of God, and the world needs our intercessions. But when we're caught in sin and we're hiding from God, our prayers become muted, and it's hard to talk to God if you're hiding from him. This scene is convicting because the world sometimes has more of a sense of urgency than we do. They're freaking out because they think their gods have abandoned them. And of course, in a sense, they're right because their gods can't help them at all. But we have something they don't have. And we often take it for granted. In Jonah's case, it's worse than that because the sailors are freaking out because they think their gods can't see them. They're praying because they wish gods would show up. And Jonah is sleeping because he's convinced God won't. He's the only man on this ship whose God will hear them, but death doesn't scare Jonah as much as God's presence does. It's a messed up situation. 
All right. Once again, it's kind of hard perhaps to see the gospel in these verses. Um, Jonah's not only rebellious, he's ignorant and lazy to boot, right? Not much of a hero. But who's the hero of every Bible story? Jesus, that's right. You guys are listening. Well, oddly enough, there's an interesting parallel here to a gospel passage, and it's bizarrely similar, and once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Uh, Matthew talks about it, but I I wanted to read Mark's version. In Mark chapter 4, he says, On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I take it that's a familiar passage to many of you. But it's kind of hard to miss the parallels, isn't it? It's obvious enough that most Jews would recognize it immediately as an echo of Jonah. Both times a storm comes up suddenly. Both times the guys sailing the boat panic and think they're all going to die. And Jesus and Jonah both sleep through the whole thing. But as we keep seeing, Jesus is much better than Jonah because he's always the hero of the story. And that's partly why we have that story is to remind us that Jesus is kind of like Jonah, but also nothing like Jonah at all. He's what Jonah should have been. You're supposed to notice the similarities, but even more important is the contrast. Jonah slept because he thought he could get away from God. Jesus slept because he knew that was impossible. You can't run away from God. He will chase you down. He will send a divine spanking if necessary. He won't even let you sleep. The gospel in this passage is that God will hunt you down wherever you hide. If you belong to him, you can't hide even if you try. David puts it this way. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Christian, you cannot get away from him. When Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, he put a homing device in you. A Christian is a living temple of the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, it should be pretty obvious that believers can't escape him because you can't outrun yourself. He will find you. He may spank you. He may very well send a storm, and you may try to ignore it or sleep through it, and you will probably hate it at the time, but you'll be glad in the end. Because the storm is meant to turn you back to him. Storms are a gift of God, if you have eyes to see it, because he corrects the one he loves. So believer, take this as a promise. God will not let you get away. If ever there was a guy in ever in scripture or anywhere else that he should have just let go or killed, you would think it would be Jonah. 
Uh, this guy is about as irredeemably awful as can be. He's irrational, childish, incapable of reason. But God is chasing him down, not to destroy him, but to wake him up. The tempest is the spanking of a loving father. And it's the only language Jonah will understand. So for those of you who are maybe going through storms right now, maybe it feels a bit like a spanking in some ways, I just want to encourage you, don't hide and sleep and don't panic like a pagan sailor either. Act like a child of the living God. Call out to him and he will give a thought to you because he listens to his children. And that's what you are in Christ. So do what the world cannot. Call out to the God who hears. Cry out like a drunken sailor and the God of comfort will take away your fears. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that this is not the end of this story. That you are still chasing down Jonah and that you are not done with him yet. And we thank you that no matter how often we try to run away from you, you don't let us get away, not ultimately. We thank you that you are faithful when we are not. Lord, track us down, bring us back, and teach us to cry out to you. Help us to know that you hear us, even on the sea. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand me and drink, uh, stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God.